Your service matters. Whether you're in the military or you're a journalist or you're a teacher or a fireman, first responder, it matters when you serve. It's about a purpose-driven life. People wanted to ask me how my, my child wants to be a catcher. What do I tell them? And I say, catch every ball. And in life, isn't that the way it is? We all show some form of valor. Common people doing uncommon things. Loyalty, duty, honor, respect, selfless service, integrity, personal courage. They laid down everything to go to war for us so we can be free to sit here and talk this podcast. Why? Why did you do it? What impelled you to put aside the instinct for self-preservation and risk your lives? It was faith and belief. It was loyalty and love, clear convictions and beliefs. It's important in a democracy for us to know that freedom isn't free. The Bob Feller Act of Valor Foundation is exactly the right name for that foundation to inform the American public about the ideals and the virtues and the heroism of people like Bob Feller. Bob Feller, he said, my one piece of advice is read our Constitution and run your lives according to the Constitution. We swear an oath to a document that stands for freedom, makes this experiment that we call the United States of America. We are not perfect, but we hold the moral high ground. We are trying to, in the words of our founding document, in order to form a more perfect union. There are going to be some tough calls to make the world safer, better, to represent those values. We can continue to make this world a much, much better place. Greetings. My name is Galen O'Dell, alongside Leo Manchetti, and welcome to the American Valor Podcast. On the American Valor Podcast, supported by the Bob Feller Act of Valor Award Foundation, our goal is to educate and inspire with acts of valor that embody the traits which National Baseball Hall of Famer and United States Navy Chief Petty Officer Bob Feller lived by. Citizenship service above self, and commitment to country in a time of great national need. On today's episode, we are joined by Jim Leake, a Navy veteran and an award-winning author of numerous books. Jim, welcome to the American Valor Podcast. Thank you. I appreciate being here. So to start us off, please tell us a little bit about yourself and your career. Okay, well, I'm here in Columbus, Ohio, which is where I mostly grew up. A long time ago, as you mentioned, I served in the Navy. After that, I uh, went to Ohio State to the journalism school. Then I went into uh, newspapers for a while. The historian Teddy White quoted a uh, industrialist who used to hire journalists, and he said, "The smarter they were, the quicker they got out of journalism." And I guess I wasn't that smart because I was working on daily papers six or seven years. Uh, before I moved on. Then I worked in the, the technology trades. I worked in industry for a while. Um, I worked for various agencies, uh, mostly with technology clients and pharmaceutical clients. And for well, quite a few years after that, I was a freelancer, had my own little marketing communications company for a while, and did a little bit of everything in quite a few places. Jim, what made you decide to pursue a career in the U.S. Navy? 
Well, I didn't pursue a career. I had uh, one four-year hitch. And uh, the impulse, I suppose, behind that was the fact that at the time there was a draft. <laughs> I had uh, sort of lost my way a little bit. I had dropped out of college. I didn't really know what I wanted to do. And there was a draft and I was 1A. I didn't especially want to be drafted and have nothing to say about what I might be doing. So I looked around and ultimately uh, enlisted in the Navy. And I have to say they made pretty good use of me. I probably would have been a miserable infantryman, uh, but I made a pretty good communications technician. Interesting. What is the role of a communications technician exactly? That rating is now called uh, cryptologic analyst, I believe. Mm -hmm. I was working in electronic intelligence analysis. And I, well, that takes quite a while to go through that school. But after that, I worked overseas in uh, Spain for a couple of years with an aerial reconnaissance squadron. We were sort of keeping tabs on North Africa and the Middle East. And then my last year, I was uh, in the Pacific on a, an aircraft carrier. And we were uh, at the tail end of the Vietnam War. We were in the, the Gulf of Tonkin the, the last couple of months before the ceasefire in uh, January 1973. After serving as a communications technician in the Navy during the Vietnam War, what did you decide to do after getting out? Well, truthfully, I didn't know what I wanted to do. I came back home, I enrolled, re-enrolled at Ohio State, and I was going to school on the GI Bill, and I was dabbling in what interested me. I took as many creative writing courses as they would let me take. I took as many photography courses as, as they would let me take, and uh, various other things. But still, I didn't quite know what I wanted to do. In fact, I think I threatened to uh, leave school Every quarter I was there for like the first eight quarters until I got onto the, uh, the campus newspaper, which was called The Lantern. And that's where everything really came together. And I just loved The Lantern. I loved the students that I worked with. I loved the professor who uh, oversaw the paper, who in fact had a, a Pulitzer Prize. And, and that's really where I, I found my colleague, I think. Once you graduated from Ohio State, did you start your journalism career at a local newspaper or a regional newspaper? Uh, well, I went a very long way. <laughs> uh, I started working for the Pacific Daily News on Guam, believe it or not. Hmm. At that time, and probably still today, uh, it was a Gannett paper, part of the, the huge chain. And for some reason, I've never quite understood, there were quite a lot of Ohio Staters out there, maybe because we were gullible enough to go. But it was a really interesting experience. And I had been in the Pacific before that, obviously, so I wasn't particularly intimidated about going that far. So I went out there and worked for about a year as a general assignment reporter. I covered the cops for a while and I did a column for a while. After I came back, uh, I worked in Battle Creek, Michigan, sort of the same deal, general assignment reporter covering a little bit of everything. Uh, city council, murders, plane crashes, you know, just, just the whole uh, wide spectrum of things. Uh, then I went back out to California, to, to San Francisco. Uh, I worked on a um, 
technology publication for a while. I worked for four years in Palo Alto for a newspaper that's now long since gone, the Peninsula Times Tribune, where again, I did a little bit of everything. I actually started there on the business desk working in Silicon Valley. I wasn't exactly the first uh, generation in the Valley, but I was probably, I don't know, generation 2.5 or something. There were still a lot of the original people around. So it was a, a great introduction to technology, a great education. After a business, I moved over to the lifestyles desk. And after that, I actually covered uh, Major League Baseball for, for a season. I covered the Oakland A's one year, which was, which was great and sort of led long term to some of what I'm, I'm doing now. After daily newspapers, I worked in the technology trades for a while. And as I said, after that, it was sort of a, a progression of things, uh, both within industry and uh, agencies and working for myself. So, you know, it wasn't a straight line by any means, but I don't think there are a lot of people these days whose career path is a straight line. Yeah, of course. It's anything but straight these days. And when you think about it, it's cool how just one brief moment or single experience can completely change what you want to do in your life. Especially if you have sort of a grasshopper mind like I do. <laughs> Yeah. Or maybe I'm more like my dog. You know, I see a squirrel and go off chasing mm. squirrels. And I'm always going off on some path that interests me and burrow into it for a long time until something else catches my eye. Nice. So over the past four years, it feels like journalism has been under threat, whether it be from ever-evolving technology and or the current political climate. As someone who has worked in the industry, what are your takeaways from these past four years? Well, the, the past four years have been a challenge in every industry for, for every person, I think. The, the technology and communication, it's always going to change. Uh, you know, I've been around a long time, and the, the amount of change I've seen is, is truly staggering. You know, I don't even take a daily newspaper anymore because it's outdated by the time it gets to my driveway. When I was working on papers, we had one deadline a day. Now there, every story, every minute is a deadline. Just keeping up with that is a monumental task. I'm glad I don't have to do it, frankly. But the technology, the legislation, the changing reader habits, that's always going to be a challenge for journalists and, and journalism. Uh, the, the political climate, that's a whole different deal. When I was in journalism school, President Nixon was getting run out of office. When that was over, I suppose we thought we were safe, that the First Amendment was safe, that journalists were safe. Well, that, if, if that's what we thought, we were naive. If anything, the last four years have taught us that we can't ever re relax. We can't ever take anything for granted. We always have to be vigilant. We always have to fight. We can't let things slide. We can't become complacent. Uh, we have to follow the truth as best we can, report it as best we can, understand it as best we can, and not put up with untruths and lies and evasions. Yeah, and that's why it's vital to constantly fact check. 
when it comes to technology, do you think Silicon Valley has had a hand in making journalism feel under threat? I think they might have had a hand in it unintentionally. That's always the law of unintended consequences. You know, you get a new technology and you get all these tremendous things, you know, most of which you would hope for, but then there's always a downside that nobody foresaw or not very many people foresaw. And uh, that's a challenge too, to make things work for the better, to to keep them working for the better. You know, I, I came up through journalism before the internet, which is a long time ago, but I did, and, and that changed everything. That actually didn't change things as quickly as I thought it was going to. Uh, I thought uh, we would have newspapers on our computers before, long before we did, or long before it became commonplace. The, the internet has been a tremendous benefit to just about everybody. It certainly was to me. The books I've written in recent years I couldn't have written it all or could only have written with a great deal more effort and a great deal more trial, travel, and uh, time in archives. It's unbelievable what I can do now from my office. But it's also unbelievable all the downsides, all the handicaps, all the barriers that the technology ha- has uh, created as well. So, you know. Unintended consequences. You've always got to be able to, you always have to be willing to adapt and change and see if you can move things back towards a better direction. Jim, when you were in the Silicon Valley, did you meet anybody or see any technology that you thought, wow, this is going to transform the world? Well, you know, when I first got to the Valley, this was the very late 70s, early 80s, a long time ago. Intel was the big company, and all the founders were still there. And uh, at one time or another, I met and spoke with all three of them. You know, a, a tremendous opportunity. I, I, I still can't believe I was able to do it and, and to meet people like them and report on people like them and on the technologies they were creating. You know, back then they, were, they would say that uh, the microchips would be – twice as fast and half the cost every 18 months. And I, I don't think it's quite that uh, rapid today, but uh, still the, the advances that we see and have always seen are just staggering. You know, when I was in high school a long time ago, a computer filled an entire air-conditioned room. Well, that entire air-conditioned room couldn't begin to do what my phone does now. You know, it, it's staggering. It really is. So after spending some time as a journalist, as well as working in Silicon Valley in the technology industry, what made you decide to become an author? That's a good question. I think even when I was still in in college, uh, well, I know I I wanted to uh, write a novel even back then. And my, uh, my advisor, the paper advisor, I should say, I knew I wasn't ready for that and said word to me to, you know, get on with it, <laughs> and, you know, find a job, which is, which is what I did. But after I'd been in uh, newspapers for a number of years, I um, decided I was ready to, to write that novel. Uh, 
Uh, it was my first book. It was a mystery novel based on a murder case that I had actually covered. So I left the paper in Palo Alto, went abroad just to write the, uh, the mystery, which in fact eventually got published. But I always figured that I would go back to newspapers. But that time away, I don't know, it must have let me decompress or something because I never did go back to newspapers and I, I never particularly missed them. Uh, you don't realize what a high pressure environment that is while you're in it. But when you get out of it, you go, oh my God, that was intense. And I did that for a long time. And a lot of people did that for a long time. I, I used to have an editor who was truly beloved in our newsroom and uh, you know, much older than we were. We, we were in our 20s and 30s and he was probably in his 50s. And I literally feared that one day he was going to die of a heart attack on the newsroom floor. And he finally took early retirement and moved up to the mountains. And I saw him like six months later and he looked so much better. Like, you know, I wanted to go up and throw my arms around him and say, oh, you look wonderful. Thank God you didn't die. And, and journalism can do that. It could do that even way back then. I'm sure it's just as intense and probably even more so now. I agree with you there. It seems like oftentimes after we experience something, we often reflect on it and we're like, wow, I can't believe I just went through all of that. Yet while we're in the middle of the experience, we don't think about what exactly it is we're doing, I guess because we're just so focused on what needs to be accomplished. That's exactly true. And I felt the same thing in, in one or two of the agencies where I worked, where I worked with such tremendous people and enjoyed it at the time, but didn't really realize until I wasn't there anymore what a tremendously capable bunch that was and how, how good the work was that we were doing. It's so when you're in it, you, you, you often really don't appreciate it. I mean, you may enjoy it and, and know you're uh, with good people, but you don't get the full scope of it sometimes until later. Of all the books you have written, what was your favorite book to write and why? You know, I, I've been thinking about that, and I, I don't think I, I do have a favorite. You know, maybe the, uh, the mystery novel all those years ago, but I never wrote another mystery. I, I think you pretty much have to focus on your latest, particularly if you do a number of books, as I've done now. You have to focus on your latest, which is you know, what I'm doing now. The, my book that came out this spring is... Um, the best team over there, which is about uh, the pitcher Grover Cleveland Alexander and his service in the field artillery in France during World War I. So that's my favorite book at the moment. It's, it's what I'm talking about and, and what I'm thinking about. But then I know I have another book that's just about to go into editing. So a few months down the line, that'll be my favorite book. What's that book about? That book is about post-World War II aviation. It's about two long-distance flights, one by a Navy plane, the other by uh, an Army plane that set long-distance records the same week, sort of in competition, in October 1946. Oh, so it's like the Army-Navy game, except instead of playing on a football field, they're in the air. You know, I said almost that exactly, that was <laughs> the next 
thing in, in the manuscript. That's right. Yeah. The, the competition uh, was intense between the services. So the two crews each appreciated the other. You've written a lot of books that have intertwined military and baseball. From your point of view, how strong are the connections between baseball and the military? Well, you know, they've, they've always been strong. Uh, they've, they've changed over the years. In World War I and World War II, a lot of the ballplayers served in the military, of course, which only strengthened the ties. And a lot of those ballplayers played ball while they were in uniform for the troops and for civilians as well sometimes to, to raise money for various war charities. The past several decades, that hasn't been true largely. I mean, there have been very few athletes in any game who have served in the, the armed forces because there's no draft anymore. And I don't know that that's particularly a good thing. In World War I, World War II, baseball was the national pastime. It really was the national game. Today, baseball is a national game, not even the most popular national game. Uh, it still has ties with the military, uh, but I think today the, the ties are more commercial <laughs> and related to public relations. And I, I don't particularly like them. I, I don't think a, a lot of vets particularly like them because it, it's so... I don't know how genuine it is, to tell you the truth. Baseball has always been a good recruiting tool, but now I think it's, it and other sports, it's more of a hard sell, more of a, I, I don't know how genuine the ties between sport and the military are anymore. Yeah, it seems with how sports are becoming more commercialized, those connections that sports like baseball once had with the military while they're still strong in some ways, they aren't as visible as they once were. And since we know of 37 Hall of Famers that served in the military during World War II, one of them being Bob Feller. Jim, what do you think Bob would make of baseball being more commercialized in this day and age? You know, I never had the privilege of meeting the man. Uh, I gather he was a fairly uh, hard-nosed, no-nonsense type. So I don't know that he would be particularly enamored of, say, the past weekend when everybody was wearing those camo hats in MLB. You know, that was supposed to be for Armed Forces Day, but yeah. hardly anybody knows what Armed Forces Day is, and it wasn't mentioned all that much. And, and frankly, it kind of looked kind of ridiculous, I think, trying too hard. When I, when I questioned the genuine nature of the thing. That's one of the things that I mean, that I point to. It's trying too hard. When you make everybody a hero, I don't know if you recognize genuine heroism when you see it. Getting back to your point on the camo hats, I think the league was banking on the fact that when most people see camouflage, they automatically associate it with the military, given how many military units these days wear camouflage. So we noticed that you're doing a piece on 
Chester Red Torkelson. And we were wondering if you could tell us a little bit about his legacy. Uh, sure. I, I don't know that uh, Red had much of a legacy, but he's a very interesting story. I don't know whether you're familiar with the Baseball Biography Project, which is sponsored by Sabre, the Baseball Society for American Baseball Research. Uh, the goal of the Bio Project is to have a short profile of everyone who ever played Major League Baseball. It's an unreasonable, unreachable goal, of course, but it's, a, it's an interesting goal. And it's all volunteer effort, all the writing and the editing and everything. Uh, no one gets paid for it. I, I've done, I think Red Torkelson was the 10th piece I've done for them. And eight of the 10 were World War I ballplayers because I, I just love World War I ballplayers. And Red pitched one month for the Cleveland Indians in 1917 before he got called up and went into the Army. And his story is interesting because from the time he was a boy on the sandlots, he had one dream. He wanted to pitch to Ty Cobb, Nat Lajoie, and Honus Wagner. <laughs> and believe it or not, in his one month in the majors, he managed to do it, even though only Ty Cobb was in the American League with the Indians. The other two men he faced in exhibition games. So in his <laughs> one month, he, he fulfilled that boyhood dream and pitched those three amazingly good players, among the, the best players ever in the game. And he went into the Army. And he never got back to the major leagues. He never pitched another inning in the major leagues. But he, he, he survived in the minors into the 1920s as a pitcher and as a sort of a sideline comedian, which was popular back then. So I just love uh, Red Torkelson's story. And I had to share it. And uh, the Bio Project gave me the perfect audience for it. By any chance, did you know how he uh, fared when he faced those three great hitters? He struck out Cobb, and then later he picked him off first base, <laughs> which really made the Georgia pitch mad. He walked Wagner, and if I'm remembering correctly, uh, Lajoie didn't get a hit off of him, but he had a couple of long fly balls, I think. I'm going to have to go back and read the piece again. It seems he did pretty well. He didn't give up they, they, Yeah, they didn't beat him into the ground. He did really well. The story sort of grew afterwards, and some of the newspapers had him striking out all three men. He didn't do that, but he did pretty well for a rookie. What are the most important steps one takes to become a successful author? Well, first of all, you have to have the basic talent. You have to have something in you that impels you to do it to do it well. You can learn to be a, a better writer, but you can't learn to be a writer. It's going to be within you. And, and the main thing is, once you, you get going, is you have to have the discipline. Uh, discipline is everything. You have to do it, well, every day or pretty close to every day. You can't let the task intimidate you I think a lot of people who want to be writers or authors 
start out, you know, get a few paragraphs or a few pages and realize how far there is to go, what a monumental task it is to write a book and just sort of surrender to despair. <laughs> I really think that happens to, to most would-be writers. You have to set that aside. You just have to say to yourself, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to do it a little bit at a time for a very long time until I've got it done. It's as simple as that, really. Jim, a question we often ask our guests on the American Valor podcast involves the word valor. And so looking back on your career, whether it be as a communications technician in the Navy, being a journalist, working in Silicon Valley, or being an author, what does the word valor mean to you? You know, I, I've been thinking about that, and I don't think there's one particular type of valor. One sort of valor is we've seen this last year, 15 months, uh, say for the uh, healthcare professionals and the first responders. That's valor. If, if I've ever seen valor, they have it. You know, doing the very tough, tough job for the rest of us every day, every day. Uh, I don't know how some of those hospital people did it. I really don't. That's, that's valor. And they're just, you know, they're doing their everyday job. And then there's the sort of military valor. I suppose for most people, it's the same kind of thing as the healthcare providers. You know, you, if you're in the service, you do your job uh, every day. And, and some people say that's valor. Maybe it is. I, I don't think very many people who are in uniform at the time would call that valor. They would just, like the healthcare professional, they would say, well, this is what I'm trained for. It's, it's my job, so I'm doing it. And then there's the extraordinary valor, the type that's inexplicable, you know, to the rest of us. Uh, one of the things I was privileged to see when I was in the Navy was I saw John McCain step off the plane from Hanoi. A bunch of us from my ship, they arranged buses and we went from uh, Subic Bay up to Clark Air Force Base to, to greet that group of returning POWs. You know, we'd been offshore while they were in prison while well, that last horrible bombing campaign was going on. And now they were coming home, so we got a chance to go see them. So there were three planes, and I think there were like 103 or 104 returning POWs, and John McCain was one of them. And, and the whole fleet knew who he, was, who he was, because his father had been uh, the commander of the Pacific Fleet, St. Pack. So I saw John McCain hobble down that ramp from the plane, fresh back from Hanoi. I saw all those other men get off that plane fresh from Hanoi. It gives me chills just to think about it even now. And today, my next door neighbor, uh, he was also a Vietnam POW. He's a retired Air Force Major General. Uh, he didn't come back with that group, but he was in the Hanoi Hilton with John McCain. 
that's valor. That's that's extraordinary valor that I I can't even comprehend. And I, I don't think most people can. So as with a lot of things, there's a, a spectrum to uh, valor. And and I've I've been privileged to see sort of uh, much of that spectrum. That was a great answer. The last thing I want to discuss is baseball's popularity. Uh, it seems like the MLB is losing popularity in terms of ratings to sports like the NFL and the NBA. And it seems like they can't attract a young audience and a new audience. And what do you think Major League Baseball could do to attract a bigger audience and get the younger fan involved? Well, yeah, MLB, you know, I don't speak for anybody but myself, but I, I think they are sort of flailing around and not doing a particularly good job of attracting younger fans. And part of the problem, I think, is the game is changing. It's getting longer to many minds, especially young minds. It's getting boring. And there's an awful lot of attention being paid to that right now. You know, there there have been six or 6.5, if you want to say, no hitters already this year. You know, crazy. So I think baseball knows it has a problem. I think it's trying to address it. I think a lot of people are talking about it and offering suggestions. And uh, you know, I'm no great baseball mind, so so I'm not going to offer one particularly. But I think uh, the future of MLB, and I think MLB agrees with it, is in large part overseas. I think, I mean, we've been talking about truly international baseball for more than 100 years. The guys that came back from World War I really expected that baseball would take off in Europe. It never did. Uh, but in the last oh, 10, 15 years, baseball begun to be popular in uh, England, in the UK, becoming more and more popular in Europe, been popular for, for decades in, in Asia, Japan has played uh, very good baseball for many decades. Uh, Korea is playing very good baseball, which we got to see last year during the pandemic when we didn't have games. The Korean games were on. There's the league in Taiwan. There's been uh, excellent, excellent baseball in in Latin America and the Caribbean for many decades. And we see more and more players from overseas. And I think uh, in the long run, we'll see franchises overseas as well. And, you know, I really hope we do. I hope I hope those of us talking about that now don't end up like the Doughboys and sports writers from World War I who expected it. But I, I think there's a lot better chance of truly international competition at the major league level in, in the years and decades ahead. That's a very interesting point about international franchises. And in terms of all the no-hitters this season, I saw Clayton Kershaw put out that all the no-hitters and batters just not being successful at the plate isn't really good for baseball, in his opinion, because there's just a lack of hits and a lack of entertainment in the games. And he says that even though pitchers are being successful, it might not be good for baseball overall. Yeah, I I certainly would agree with him, just speaking for myself. What, six no-hitters and a, a seventh that they won't count? And it's not even the end of May. That's that's just that's just crazy. The hits are down. The, the home runs are up, and, and uh, a lot of the fans are 
are bored and a lot of new fans that you might have won, you're not going to get. So yeah, MLB has a lot of challenges, and uh, you know I'm not I'm not the big, big brain who's going to give them the answers, but there are a lot of people thinking about it, and I certainly hope that answers will come. And I agree with you that by globalizing baseball, that can help grow the game, and help the sport get to the same level as say soccer, which is a very, very popular sport all around the world. Yeah, you know, during World War One, people really thought that was going to happen. It didn't happen a century ago, but it, it's beginning to happen now. And, you know, last year during the pandemic season, I really enjoyed watching the Korean League on TV. You know, the, I didn't get up at 4.30 and 5 o'clock in the morning to watch it, but I, I recorded it and watched it at my leisure in, in the afternoon. It was very good baseball. Uh, it wasn't quite Major League level, but it was certainly a oh, double-A or triple-A level, I, w- I would say. And uh, I, I hope Korea and Japan and South America and Europe, I, I hope all those leagues uh, keep growing and, and keep uh, improving and uh, giving the uh, the American teams a run for their money, as we've expected for more than a century now. Absolutely. Okay, so I think that just about wraps up our interview. Jim, thank you so much for coming on. It was great getting to meet you and speak with you today. Well, thanks very much. I uh, enjoyed it and appreciate the opportunity. To our listeners, this conversation with Jim Leak concludes this episode of the American Valor podcast. This conversation was brought to you by the Bob Feller Active Valor Award Foundation, the Department of the United States Navy, Major League Baseball, USAA, BWXT, Huntington Ingalls, and the Cleveland Indians. Please leave your comments in the comment section below and connect with the Bob Feller Active Valor Award Foundation on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Active Valor Award. You can engage with the foundation at ActiveValorAward.org. There, you can learn more about Bob Feller, Jerry Coleman, recent nominees of the awards, view pictures, and sign up for updates, including the American Valor podcast, and more. For Leo Menchetti, and everyone here at the American Valor podcast, I'm Galen O'Dell. Thank you for joining us, and we'll talk to you next time.